If you would, please take out your copy of Scripture and turn with me if you have the old school leather-bound ink paper contraption. Turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 11 and also find your way to Proverbs. And if you have the newfangled electronic device, turn on your Bible with me to Proverbs, Matthew chapter 11. Whichever way works for you guys, turn turn to Matthew chapter 11 and also be sure to find your way to Proverbs uh, chapter 9. Proverbs 9, Matthew 11. If you're not sure where Proverbs is, go to the middle of the Bible, just flip it open. It'll be probably the Psalms. If you hit Isaiah, you're not quite in the middle, but that's okay. If you hit Isaiah, go left to find your way to Proverbs. And if you hit Psalms, go right to find your way to Proverbs. Specifically, find your way to Proverbs uh, chapter, chapter 9. We'll be there a little later on today. Um, we've been reviewing John the Baptist. We saw him two years ago when we were in Matthew chapter 3, and we've, we've been reintroduced to him in recent weeks. Jesus is going to say something very profound today regarding the message of John the Baptist and regarding his own message. Before we jump into all of that, I just want to remind you of a couple of key points which will be pertinent for us today as we look at the text. Number one, John is dealing with doubt. He's struggling with doubt. He's in prison. He sends his disciples to go ask Jesus, are you the one that we're looking for? And Jesus makes this statement. If you'll, if you'll look in chapter 11, verse 4, he says, go and tell John, and notice the order here, go and tell John what you hear and see. John's experience needs to be interpreted through Scripture. In other words, what he hears God saying needs to shed light on what he is experiencing. And then the other thing I want to draw your attention to, he makes this statement uh, in verse 11, jump down to chapter 11, verse 11, he says, I tell you, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. No one greater than John the Baptist. So bear those things in mind as we look at the text. This morning, we're going to be focusing specifically on chapter 11, verses 16, 16 to 19. So if you would, read with me. We'll read, and then we will pray, and we'll get to work. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word to us this morning. We thank you for Jesus' admonition to the crowd that is listening to him, that it's not so much how they are saying it as much as it is what they are saying. Father, help us to understand that it is the gospel that saves. It is not our presentation necessarily. It is not the manner in which we go about it. Ultimately, of most significance is the substance of your truth. Lord, drive that home to us this morning as we look at Jesus and John the Baptist. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
A number of weeks ago in the Kamloops This Week newspaper, there was an article on the Sikh community, uh, specifically within the Sikh group. Sikh is a, is a religious faith. Within the Sikh group, there's a, a, a small contingent of individuals who are seeking to uh, secure an exemption from the Canadian government on wearing a helmet when they ride motorcycles. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with Sikhs, Sikhs are individuals who believe that all of the scriptures and all world religions are equally true. They're all valid, and they subscribe to all of them. Um, they have a number of also specific holy books and things that they also pay attention to, and they have a few unique and interesting practices that they embrace. Number one most significant practice, which if you've ever met somebody from East India or somebody who is a Sikh, you'll notice that they don't cut their hair. Uh, it is their belief as Sikhs that uh, the hair is something very, very sacred. That as your hair grows over the course of your entire life, it is uh, reflective of the, of the natural creative process. And so you should never cut your hair. And in fact, you need to keep your hair clean. And that's why they often wear turbans. They bind all their hair up into a turban. They don't cut it, and they don't want it to be made impure. And so they will wrap it up in a, in a turban. And so the course, over the course of their life, they'll never cut it, and they'll always have it wrapped up. And as they go older and older and they get more and more hair, you'll notice the turbans on their heads get bigger and bigger. If you're trying to ride a motorcycle, to put a helmet on over that can be impossible. And so the Sikh community is trying to secure an exemption from the Canadian government for wearing helmets. Now, if you were able to read a copy of the Friday's edition of the Kamloops This Week newspaper, the August 22nd edition, there was an interesting, an interesting letter written to the editor. Editor, I am a Pastafarian. I was pleased to read the August 19th KTW article, Turning Heads, which touched on the subject of religious headgear worn by Sikhs while riding motorcycles. This issue affects not just one, but all religions when it comes to laws that state what can and cannot be worn. I, too, ride a motorcycle and have been pulled over countless times by police while wearing the colander, the sacred headpiece worn by Pastafarians. I believe all religious headgear should be exempt from the helmet law without discrimination based on religion, as stated in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms Act of 1982. I applaud the Sikh Motorcycles Club, Sikhs Motorcycle Club for exercising their rights. And I hope one day Pastafarianism and all other religions can also be free to express themselves regardless of whether or not they are on a motorcycle in any way they see fit. This is, after all, about the freedom of religion and not safety while riding a motorcycle. Now that is extremely biting satire. Some of you are asking yourselves right now, what is Pastafarianism? There's a picture in the paper, you may not be able to see it from where you're sitting, there is Ryan Cliff, it's signed, Ryan Cliff, ordained minister for the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. Pastafarianism, it's not a real religion. I hope you haven't been snookered by it. It's not, it's not legitimately a religion. It's a, it's a satire. It's a critique. It's something that uh, individuals who are, in truth, atheists have come up with in order to mock and belittle all religious belief everywhere. Now, it, it is pure satire. And so, as I read this article... It's biting. 
And if you're a Sikh, I imagine if you're reading this article, you're thinking, this guy's a lunatic. He is an absolute moron. Riding around on his motorcycle, wearing a colander. But look a little closer with me for a second, would you? He makes the statement, and now this is satire. So you understand that there's a particular genre that he's working with here in order to communicate a point. And if you've read any of the comments on the website, you'll notice that his point was received. He makes a statement, I believe all religious headgear should be exempt from the helmet law without discrimination based upon the religion as stated in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms Act, etc., so forth and so on. The last paragraph is really where he gets to what he wants you to see. I applaud this motorcycle club for exercising their rights and hope that one day Pastafarianism and all other religions can be free to express themselves, notice the last phrase, regardless of whether or not they are on a motorcycle. In other words, I want them to be able to express themselves however they want, not just on a motorcycle. So the point of satire is to draw comparisons. I worship the flying spaghetti monster. My spaghetti monster wants me to wear a colander when I ride my motorcycle. That's what he wants us to do as we worship him. Which begs the question, for the Sikh community, your God that you worship, why would he not be okay with you wearing a helmet when you ride your motorcycle? Is not life more than hair? Now, it's a substantive question that takes you to core-level foundational ideas. Why does our God not want us to wear helmets? Or, let's just assume for a second that it's true and there's a valid reason, then why are you as Sikhs riding motorcycles? And then his last paragraph gets to the real heart of the issue. If we just grant exemptions for everyone, then what's going to be the point of any kind of law in society? Now, the manner in which he does it, I'm willing to bet most of us in this room find that offensive. Most of us in this room, I'm willing to bet, are not fans of satire. I think this guy, Ryan Cliff, is an apt illustration of a modern-day John the Baptist. They say, what? How do you figure? John is weird. The Baptist is weird. It's just straight up, he does not conform to any societal principles, and the way that he brings his message is incredibly biting, incredibly harsh, and incredibly in your face. I want you to keep your place in Matthew chapter 11, I want you to flip back to Matthew chapter 3. I just want to show this to you. When John the Baptist first makes his appearance, look at what he says. It says in, John, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Verse 2, look at this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is his message. Repent, the kingdom is upon us. Stop living the life the way that you're living it, and get your hearts ready, because the king is arriving. It's coming. And then you skip down a little bit in verse 7. It says, When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Oh, how wonderful. I'm so glad that you guys are here to get baptized. This is great. 
I love you, you love me, we're a happy family. <laughs> Does they say that? No, he doesn't. Similar to our friend Ryan Cliff of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, although not like our friend Ryan Cliff from the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, but in an equally biting, very in-your-face, very confrontational way, John the Baptist says, you brood of vipers, you snakes, bear fruit in, sorry, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He goes right at them. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, they show up. They're like, you know what? We want to get baptized. And John says to them, you guys are snakes. Number one, it's a vile, filthy, dirty creature. It's the most offensive thing you could possibly say, not just to your average, ordinary, run-of-the-day Jews. These are the religious elite These are the scribes and the Pharisees. And he calls them snakes. And he says, who told you guys to flee from God's judgment? The implication meaning, oh, man, I didn't want my message of repentance and salvation to get to you. That's hard-hitting, to put it mildly. That's in your face. Ah, shucks, you guys found out about salvation. Then his exhortation is, you need to bear fruit, genuine fruit. Otherwise, God's going to chop you down. And it doesn't matter your religious or genetic biological heritage. You have no advantages. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Otherwise, God is going to chop you down like a tree. Translation, man, I really wish you hadn't found out about salvation. But since you did, you better make sure you repent. Otherwise, God's going to chop you up like a tree. Now, that is in-your-face confrontational preaching. Jesus comes along. Does he threaten to chop anybody down? Does he come along and say, I'm going to burn you guys all up with unquenchable fire? No, he doesn't. Jesus comes along, and you'll notice his message is still the same. Skip with me if you're still in Matthew chapter 3. I want you to just skip over, stay there, chapter 4. Look at verse 17. When Jesus gets He gets baptized, he goes out in the wilderness, he's tempted, he begins his public ministry, and you see here in verse 17, chapter 4, from that time Jesus began to preach, and notice what he's saying, it's the same as John the Baptist. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, what's John saying? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They're saying the same thing. John is saying, man, I really wish you hadn't heard about this. I'd rather you not be saved, but if you're going to be saved, you better make sure you're saved because you're going to get chopped to pieces. Jesus, as we encounter him in Matthew chapter 4, he says the same thing, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but then he goes about healing people. He goes about raising people from the dead. He goes about casting out demons. One is preaching judgment. One is engaged largely in a ministry of healing and miracle working. Two totally different approaches but it is the same message it's the same now in Matthew chapter 11 John has started to doubt 
He's come to Jesus. He says, are you the one who's coming? And Jesus helps John sort of understand his experiences in light of the scripture. Then he turns to the crowd and he defends John to the crowd. And then he makes this powerful statement, which we need to hear in this room. Particularly if you are an individual who believes that the way you say something is of more significance than the substance of what you're saying. To what shall I compare this generation? Now this is typical rabbi speak for I'm going to teach you a spiritual truth. In the Midrash, this is the most common expression that rabbis and spiritual teachers of this day would use in order to illustrate a spiritual truth. When we're talking about spiritual truths, we're talking about something that we can't see. And so in order to explain it, we have to draw analogies. We have to draw comparisons. And Jesus is drawing a comparison about people. You guys here listening to John the Baptist and me, this generation who is hearing a guy preaching fire and brimstone and then hearing another guy healing and working miracles, this generation, hmm, how shall we understand you? What, what kind of an analogy can I bring forth to help you guys see how you really are? And here's what he says. It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. In every city in Judea, in Palestine, uh, in every town, there's going to be a marketplace. They have a word for it, the Agora. And on market days, all the farmers will come in from the, the suburbs, from the outlying fields, and they'll bring their goods and their wares in, and, and they'll, they'll sell them there, and it'll be a place of business. Okay? On other days, the, mar- the farmers won't come in to sell farm products and things of that nature. It'll be used as like a, a business meeting place where, where business can be transacted, business can be conducted. But the majority of the time, it's just like an open playground. It's where all the kids in the community will go and they'll play together. And so Jesus, he says, I want to make an illustration of what you guys are like. And then he's going to reference a site that would have been familiar to all of them, children playing on their first century playground in the, in the marketplace, in the Agora. And he says, you guys are like children who are playing there, and you called to your playmates. We played. He, he doesn't say you guys are like the ones that are calling. He says, this generation is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. And we sang a dirge, and you didn't mourn. They had two games that they basically played. If you have children, you are familiar that they will, in, in their creative playtime, play games that are imitative of mom and dad. My two daughters are always playing house. They're always playing mommy. They almost are never playing daddy. That's just, dad's there, but the, only as a part of house, okay? And um, sometimes... Actually, most of the time, they don't even play mom. They play, if you want to know the truth, they play Miss Christine and Mr. Dustin. I don't know why. Um, that's just, they prefer to be them. So, <laughs> they play house. In the first century, it's no different. These children are playing what they see. In the community, there are two large social gatherings that will happen with regular occurrence, with some frequency, weddings and funerals. And in both instances, it was a big deal to get married, and it would be a week-long celebration. And similarly, if someone passed away, it would be a very long celebration. Maybe scholars aren't in 
entirely in agreement on this, but it could also stretch on for a week there as well. When you have sort of the wake and then the embalming and putting the person in the tomb and you have mourners that go on mourning all week long. So whether it's wedding or whether it's funeral, you have these really long events that could take the better part of a week as they either celebrate or mourn. Now those are two radically different games. We're going to play a happy game, a wedding game, or it's polar opposite, 180 degrees the opposite direction, a mourning game, a funeral game. We can play any game you want. What game do you want to play? And they present two games that are at as far apart as possible at the exact opposite ends of the spectrum. Meaning, we got every which game you could ever want to think about playing. Any game you want. We played the flute for you. Happy tune. But you didn't dance. We sang a dirge. Imagine a child mimicking air flute, you know. Maybe in minor keys as they mourned and grieved the loss of some imaginary person. Imagine which child would play the part of the corpse. I'm not sure who would get chosen for that position. But it didn't really matter. They're recalcitrant, stubborn, obstinate children. It doesn't matter what game they played, they just didn't want to play. That's what Jesus is saying. What, well, how should I describe you guys? You've got John the Baptist, and you've got me. You guys, it doesn't matter how we bring the message to you. You don't care. You just won't be satisfied. They're cynical. They're cynical and they're inward focused. It's all about them. And, and as they consider the whole range of different possible ways, games that they could play, none of it makes them happy. They just won't be happy. Jesus directly applies it to him and John. It doesn't matter whether we're going to have the happy song or the sad song. It doesn't matter whether we're going to play the happy wedding game or the sad funeral game. It doesn't matter whether I'm going to talk about the promises of heaven or the judgment of hell or anything in between. You guys don't want to hear it. And he applies it specifically, verse 18. John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, ah, he has a demon. He's demon-possessed. He's a madman. He's crazed. He's out of his mind. Of course we shouldn't listen to him. Of course we shouldn't pay attention to him. And John was odd. Maybe not as odd as a Pastafarian riding around on a motorcycle with a colander on his head. But not too far from that. We're talking about an individual who ate insects dipped in honey. That was his diet. We're talking about an individual who didn't wear your typical clothing, 
didn't want to be bothered to go into the marketplaces and buy clothing. He made his own stuff, and he specifically wore camel hair, which is the roughest, coarsest possible type of garment you could wear. Talking about an individual who didn't want to have anything to do with religious establishment, didn't go into town, didn't go into the temple, lived an ascetic lifestyle as a hermit on the outskirts of the countryside, out in the wilderness, such that people, if they wanted to hear what he was saying, they had to go and hear him. They had to travel out of the town, hard journey into the wilderness, to hear him preach. And his message was, turn or burn. Fire and brimstone. And some of you are thinking, I don't really, I don't agree with that style of preaching, and I don't really like that style of preaching. I drew your attention to this because I want to make sure you understand Jesus' assessment of John is that until the arrival of Jesus, he's the greatest man that's ever lived. And Jesus comes total opposite. John, he's going to live out in the wilderness with camel hair and eating insects dipped in honey, where do we first find Jesus? Turning water into wine and partying at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. John shuns the social life. He's out in the wilderness. You got to make a journey out there to go find him out in the sticks. And even when you find him, he's going to preach a message of judgment. Jesus, he's going to heal you. He's going to work a miracle. He's going to turn water into wine. And you can find him at weddings and hanging out in people's houses. And that's what Jesus says. John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. Son of man came both eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So it doesn't matter how we present the message. It doesn't matter how we come telling people, and both sides are equally true, There is a God of judgment. There is a real hell with which we have to contend. But there is also a God of grace who holds forth a promise and the opportunity of heaven. And when people hear it, there are those, and they are still among us, and they will always be among us. It doesn't matter whether you lead with judgment and then finish it off with grace. It doesn't matter if you lead with grace and make sure to throw in the warning of judgment at the end doesn't matter how careful you are in your presentation. doesn't matter how meticulous you are in researching their personal preferences and the way that they would like to have things said to them. There are those, doesn't matter how you say it, they won't receive it. Why? Have you ever asked that question? Why? Don't flip there, just listen. The clue begins in Genesis. The clue that we need to understand this is found in Genesis chapter 3. The snake appeals to Eve and eventually to Adam, appeals to their selves, their own self-image, how they would like to see themselves. You could be like God if you'd eat the forbidden fruit. God's lying to you. You could really be like him. Now, their whole life, they've always seen themselves a certain way. Uh, Scripture alludes to the fact that their eyes were open. Their eyes were never closed. It's not as though they were walking around the garden blinded. They just didn't see themselves a certain way until they sinned. So Satan appeals 
to them causes them to look at themselves, take their eyes off of the Father, stop asking the question, what does the Father want for me, and begins to get them to just think about themselves, and specifically appeals to them to make their own assessment of the situation apart from what God says. That's what the snake does. And then the scriptures make this profound statement. Verse 7, it says, The eyes of both were opened. They eat the forbidden fruit. The eyes of both were opened. Now, their eyes were always opened. They were never blind. It's not like they were walking around the garden with walking sticks and trying to feel their way around, and then as soon as they ate the fruit, bam, they could see. When the scriptures make that statement, what they're saying is that they began to see things in a totally different way. Specifically, their senses of perception began to reveal things to them that they had never had before, that they had never understood before. Now, I don't know exactly how to explain this to you, and so I'm borrowing from pop culture. I'm using the expression sixth sense, okay? The way that they related to God, it's true that we see God in Christ in the form of a physical human being. But yet, the scriptures are clear that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 makes a statement that nobody can know what is in the mind of God except the spirit that is in, nobody can know what's in the mind of a person except the spirit that is in that person. And we have, those of us who've been redeemed, have the spirit of the Lord living inside of us. Our ability to relate to God is spiritual. Now, Adam and Eve had this ability, being created in the image of God, to relate on a spiritual level. And when they sinned, their eyes were opened. We have five senses. We have sight, hearing, uh, taste, smell, touch. But what most people don't realize is there's also a spiritual side of us that's intended to connect with God the Father, who is spirit. And when Adam and Eve partook of this forbidden fruit, that spiritual sense of perception was destroyed. Their ability to connect with God through spirit, that ability died. They experienced spiritual death that day. So when the scripture says that their eyes were opened, it's a statement about them being able to take their own assessment, take their own stock of themselves. And it's also simultaneously a statement about their inability at that moment to fully relate to God. In fact, they're filled with fear. They feel guilt. These are emotions. These are sensations. These are thoughts that they never had before when they were living in perfect harmony with him. Now there is a threat of judgment. Our ability to connect spiritually has been significantly destroyed. And they become dependent on what they see. And it started with how they see themselves. When it comes to sharing the gospel with people, we can employ Satan's approach. And we can appeal to what people think they need to hear in order to be saved. Or we can just present the message 
the substance of the gospel in its entirety as it's been given to us by the word of God. The problem with humanity, the way that it all goes down, is that we, buying into what the serpent says, begin to think that we can see things without God, and then when we fall, our eyes are open and we become incredibly dependent upon our own physical powers of perception while the spiritual side of us dies. And so the arguments are made, well, we need to think critically about what people need to hear, what they want to hear, and how they want to hear it in order for them to be saved. And yet Jesus, the gospel writers, and all the rest of the New Testament make it straightforwardly, plain as day, clear, the gospel, the presentation of the gospel, that alone has the power to save. Not clever methods designed to appeal to people's vanity, not clever methods designed to present things to people in the way that they necessarily would want to hear it. It is simply presenting the truth. Because it doesn't matter whether you do it this way or whether you do it that way. What Jesus is saying is that it is substance. It is always the substance of your remarks over how you're saying it. Look with me at the last phrase. Matthew chapter 11. He says, Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Over in Luke, this exact same account is the word is changed. It says wisdom is justified or proven by her children. The things that she gives birth to, here Matthew uses the expression wisdom is justified or proven by what she does. In other words, we know what wisdom is. Wisdom can be understood by what she does. She is proven to be wise. Wisdom is proven to be correct. Wisdom is proven to be wisdom based on what she does. Now, it's an alliteration. It's a, a reference to Proverbs chapter 9. Now, before we go there, I want to share with you another thing that I read a couple of weeks ago. Ira Glass, he's a radio personality in the States. He, he hosts a radio show, uh, This American Life, and he was attending uh, a couple of weeks ago. He was attending... Uh, a play, Shakespeare's play. And he went to go see John Lithgow appear as King Lear. Uh, this is a number of weeks ago. And he went and he saw the King Lear play, Shakespeare's play. And he tweeted afterwards, forgive me for the language, this is a direct quote, Shakespeare sucks. I don't follow John or Ira Glass. I don't know anything about him, but it created all kinds of a controversy. How can you say that? Who says that? Who says Shakespeare sucks? Dustin's looking at me like, what's wrong with this man? Exactly. Who could say that? Shakespeare. He's like the foundational sort of poet of our Western civilization. He's like one of the guys we, everybody's probably read Romeo and Juliet. Everybody going through high school probably had to read one of his plays. You can't just say that. And so, of course, people berated him and attacked him. You, you can't say that. Why would you say that? What would prompt you to make that statement? And here's what he said. He made the statement, there are no stakes in this play, and therefore it is not relatable. He then attended a production of Richard III and Twelfth Night, and he offered forth his, 
his commentary on that, and he made the statement, again, regarding Shakespeare and the writing of Shakespeare. Fantastic acting. Uh, specifically, Mark Rylance did a stand-up phenomenal job acting out the parts that he was casted for. Fantastic acting, surprisingly funny, but again, Shakespeare is not relatable. Now, I am not in the position of, you know, Macbeth. I, I'm not like in a powerful position over a kingdom. I don't have like a crazed wife who's out, you know, who's bloodthirsty, who's out to kill everyone. Uh, you know, I, I'm not, I don't believe I've ever had a prophecy made about me that one day I will marry my mother or any kind of weird stuff like that. And I've never been a star-crossed lover, okay? Like, that's never happened to me, all right? I, uh, I am not in any way as far as I can tell, ever going to be a character in one of Shakespeare's plays. Now, now, in order for me to gain any kind of value from Shakespeare, here's the question. In order for Shakespeare to have any meaning to my life, does it have to be relatable to me? Because that's what Ira Glass is saying. It's not relatable, therefore, and his poor choice of words, you know, Shakespeare sucks. Forgive me for saying that. That's his quote. Because Shakespeare doesn't relate to me. Because I'm not like a character in any one of Shakespeare's myriads of plays and things that he's written. Because I'm not like Macbeth or any of these other people, then Shakespeare has no value. Because it doesn't relate to me. And what's interesting is all the liberal establishment and a bunch of individuals who most likely are total atheists all jumped on the bandwagon and argued what I wish they would hear Jesus saying right here in Matthew chapter 11. I wish they would just hear themselves. You don't have to be a character in this play in order to relate to it. In other words, if we would climb into the world of Shakespeare, if we would seek to understand the characters and the plot and the drama and all the stuff that Shakespeare is talking about, even though we can't see ourselves there, in our 21st century Canadian lifestyle, we would never actually see something quite like this playing out in our community There are still things we can learn when we seek to understand Shakespeare and the things he's writing on his own terms. In fact, lots of people have said that. That's why Romeo and Juliet is still a staple in all public education. The atheists understand that if we will go to Shakespeare on Shakespeare's terms, our minds and our souls will be enlarged meeting Shakespeare where Shakespeare is. Ira Glass says, ah, Shakespeare is worthless to me because he doesn't meet me where I am. And all the atheists and all the agnostics and all the social elites say, that's absolute foolishness. And yet these same individuals, could we not meet Jesus where he is? Could we not travel into the world of scriptures? Sure, none of us will probably ever hear John the Baptist out in the wilderness eating honey-dipped grasshoppers. None of us, most likely, will ever have the privilege in this life of seeing something stupendously miraculous, like a dead person being raised back to life right before our very eyes. Most of us will not live out 
any kind of cool event like crossing through the Red Sea on dry ground. Most of us will not live through any kind of cool event like Elijah calling down fire from heaven. Most of us will never have that experience. And yet, for all of us in this room, this book is imminently relatable, not because it meets us where we are, but because we, through the gospel, have chosen to meet the Father and the Son where they are. Jesus makes this statement, wisdom is justified by her deeds. Flip with me. I want to show you this from Proverbs chapter 9. In Proverbs chapter 9, we meet lady wisdom and we meet woman folly. Notice what woman folly says. Look at verse 13. Woman folly is loud. She is seductive, but knows nothing. She has no intelligence. She sits, notice that phrase, because lady wisdom does not sit, she stands. But woman folly sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, and she calls to those who pass by who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. In other words, you want to have your horizons expanded, you want to grow spiritually, come here, I got something for you. And what does she offer? Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. She doesn't have anything to offer that she herself produced. And in fact, as a true cynic, she encourages the simple-minded who come to her to not see any enduring values in life and to think that morally corrupt things such as taking stuff that doesn't belong to you, that's okay. In fact, it's better than trying to earn something. The root and the heart of woman folly's message is take the shortcut, take the easy approach, do that which is morally wrong. That's woman folly. She's loud, she's seductive, she sits, she doesn't stand, and she doesn't have anything to offer. Lady Wisdom, by contrast, notice this. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Now, based on the call of Lady Wisdom, what's she asking him to do? Come to her house. Come to where she is. Hear her. Partake of what she is offering. Eat her bread. Drink her wine. Live in her house. You go to her. And all she does in terms of coming to you is just to come to you and invite you to join her. When it comes to us sharing our faith, it is true. There is a God of judgment. There is a God of holiness who fully intends to rain down wrath on sinful mankind 
for their rebellion of him. And people will hear that and say, well, I don't like that. That doesn't relate to me. And for those of us in the room who are Christians, we're like, how does that not relate to you? Wouldn't you want to escape wrath? Or are you going to approach it the other way? There's a God of love. He loves you. He cares for you. He wants to have a relationship with you. And there are people who are saying, yeah, that whole thing is, that's, that's foolishness. That's not for me either. Again, for those of us who are Christian, we're thinking to ourselves, how is it not relatable that the God of the universe wants to have a relationship with you individually? And then all too often what happens is we come back into this room, we say, I shared the gospel with so-and-so and they weren't impressed and I think I did it wrong. I think I didn't present it the right way. How can I say it in such a way that they will get it and they won't? get it is the point you see for anyone to get it they've got to want it and for anyone to get it having wanting it wanting it they have to come here in the same way that higher glass is going to have to climb into the world of shakespeare lost humanity is going to have to climb into the world of the scriptures it's not how we say it the substance of what we are saying is intended to draw people to the Father. The Father isn't trying to package this thing in a million different ways to accommodate a million different people. He has died for all humanity. And the issue in the garden was we took our eyes off of him and we looked at ourselves, which means the gospel teaches now to be saved, we have to take our eyes off ourselves and look to him. Doing so will expand us. And, you know, she says, if you're simple, just think about that expression for a second. If you don't want to be simple anymore, in other words, if you want to kind of expand your horizons, you want to enlarge your mind, you want to actually grow up spiritually, grow up into the truth that there is a God, come to my house. Bridge Baptist Church, listen. I know some of you have shared your faith and you agonize. Should I lead with judgment or do I offer grace? Do I start with grace, follow with judgment? I'm here to tell you, you're putting way too much stock in yourself and your presentation. It's the gospel that saves. And if they rejected you, it's not you that they're rejecting, and it's not the way in which you presented it that they're ultimately objecting to. It's what you're saying. It's the substance of it. And ultimately, it's them. They prefer to be simple-minded. You know, I, I encountered this article, Pastafarian. I never heard of that in my life. What? And I, I almost was like straight up like, dude, is this like a real religion? Like flying spaghetti monster? I encountered, encountered something weird that I never encountered before. And do you know what my response was? I don't like what he's saying. He's not talking to me on my terms. No way, man. I was on Google like, what is this? You know, this is weird. I wanted to understand him in his world. It's a crazy world. There's no legitimacy to it, but I climbed into it, okay? I'm just saying. Now, if a Pastafarian 
can draw in a diehard committed Jesus Christ loving Christian into his crazy psycho world with a letter to the editor making fun of seats. I'm here to tell you it doesn't really matter how you're presenting it. Jesus Christ can draw all humanity to himself, not on the style, but on the substance of what you say. Let's bow for a word of prayer.